seemingly dead material to me until um, it dawned on me that what I'm interested in, um, what I'm hoping for, um, is that instead of conveying any kind of information or idea to you that um, it may happen that an event occurs, I don't know it's what I mean by that. I, mean by that. <laughs> I already did. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't. It's um, completely unpredictable what the what the event would be. It could be, you know, just like that slight drop in the 
in the atmospheric pressure that tells you that some other kind of weather is coming up. It may be like um, Bruce's moment when he was really, you know, he tasted the, the Madeleine and, and he was really searching, what is this, what is this happening? And then suddenly the whole of Cambrai um, appears in his mind. Um, it could be a lightning bolt. So the point is that it's not predictable. Now, before I begin, or by way of the beginning, I wanted, I wanted to try and make some, some experimental uh, definitions, um, experiential definitions, if you like, um, of a few words or concepts um, that when they come up, you'll have some kind of material other than um, a word um, to go on. And for this, I have to ask you to, uh, to join me in trying something uh, physical. Anyone who is infirm, or, uh, I'm going to ask us. You'll see. You don't have to. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. Um, I'd like to see if we could all um, stand up at exactly the same time. When I say stand up. No, exactly. As we <laughs> when I say stand up, you to be able to stand up all of a piece. There's no signal, but if you would, um, try now when we feel this moment where we're all ready to, to stand up. <laughs> Focus. Um, and this is 
when I practice this, for instance, I sometimes practice it in the subway, um, I notice that the, 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 the world comes to you differently. When you, when you see uh, the eye is constructed so that you have sharp vision in the center, foveal vision, and it's a little softer at the edges, um, when you normally you're looking, the eye scans in sharp vision continually shifting here and there in sequence. And each time I look at one thing like your face, I've forgotten about what's not there. It's a figure ground uh, thing uh, where you foreground something and necessarily occlude or blur or not be conscious of something else. And uh, <clears throat> when, you, when I practice for longer times, for you know, half an hour or something, trying to do this, the two things that occur to me, one is it had, I never default to this wide vision, right? It, I'm always automatically going back to and but when I try by repeatedly, repeatedly defocusing my eyes, not only do I see <coughs> the wide I see occurrences happening here in the subway and stuff here, and they're happening simultaneously, but I actually overhear conversations contrapuntally, so that you're hearing uh, the world in a different way. It's coming to you in a kind of simultaneity, whereas before it was coming um, sequentially. This, I'll come back to this, because it has larger implications, but I wanted to um, you ought know, to have a kind of very precise impression of it. Um, I'm going to, um, the talk is called Starting Over When It's Too Late. It's, it's too late to start over a lot of things, other things you can start over. But what I mean by it is that death is on the horizon, um, and um, I'm thinking about it in various ways, and death is not a happy topic for people to think about. Mostly it's, I don't want to talk about it, said mentally or out loud. And um, that when Stuart said, the change we can't believe in, I think it's collectively a fact that we can't believe, um, I mean, nobody disbelieves that they're going to die. That would be a kind of lunacy, but <laughs> it's, we act as if you know, nothing's going to happen. I can, I've got plans for next month, for next week, for tonight. Um, I, nothing is going to happen. If I were living with that, um, I'd be living very differently. And um, some people find the thought paralyzing. Some people just absolutely block it out. And so, just as a as a um, opening pinprick or wedge. Um, I'd like when the subject, when the word and the subject, death and dying, comes up, uh, if you could try to observe very closely the, it's not even the first thought, is it? Maybe it's the first image. Um, usually there's something that precedes the image or association, a feeling, but you only notice what it is later, so it's hard to say um, in what sequence it happens, but it's in that um, uh, first glimpse. When you hear that, what is the what is the feeling, the thought, the image that comes to you? And then let it go, and we'll go on and go on listening to the talk, um, if you can. <laughs> and one last definition, um, which is um, unrelated to the other, is if you think of a circle, a complete circle, 
And then if you think of a square, right? a square is one kind of hexagon. If it becomes a pentagon, all the sides get shorter and it kicks out a little bit towards being a circle. If you thought of it as a dodecagon or whatever the 12 is, um, if you keep adding sides, the, the polygon, is that the right word? Yes. The polygon begins to approach the condition of a circle, right? You had, if you had a thousand-sided polygon, it would be almost indistinguishable about a circle, but there would be continuously this huge difference that the polygon was made up of little equal segments, however many there are, and plus one. And the circle is not made up of segments, it's continuous. The polygons, each side sits at a certain angle. The angle uh, of the circle is continually changing. And Hegel used this image, or rather I understand through Kierkegaard that Hegel used this image uh, because Kierkegaard is the one to whom I'm going to be having constant reference as I speak, even though I may not always name him. Um, and Kierkegaard says of Hegel that Hegel represented the false in infinity as the endless number of same things, like uh, infinity, if you think of eternity as just days continuing forever, you know, the idea I'll live forever. And it, we just have the same day repeating. Um, well, that's kind of like the polygon. And um, the true infinity is this perfect circle, which is um, not an endless sequence, but is a, has a kind of simultaneity to it. Um, that will come up again with this, with this concept of uh, time and how we live in either um, one kind of time or another. Um, and when we occlude, it's my contention, and I'll try to develop it a bit, when we occlude the thought that our time is limited, then our time becomes infinitely repeatable, even if it isn't in reality. I live today, and when I go to bed tonight, I don't think, um, well, that's a day that I won't repeat. Um, when I have a conversation, I rarely think, gee, I'm not that particular conversation is never going to occur again. I always think tomorrow's a new day, I start over again. Whereas something happens when um, you become conscious that you have a limited amount of time, as older people are, like me are more likely to think, um, the changes in very significant ways your experience of the world, very much as this experiment with the eye did. Um, about Five or six years ago, I was diagnosed with. Oh, now it's time to start this. I forgot to say, I'm also going to be showing some slides. I forgot, I forgot so impressed. Um, I'm going to be showing some slides, and the slides don't have any literal direct connection with what I'm going to be talking about. Um, they are an accompaniment. And as I was saying before, I'm hoping that the conditions can come about where something, where sparks can jump, where connections can be made, where something, new understandings could occur spontaneously, not because I understand them and I'm trying to convey them to you, but because as you're looking at the slides and as you're listening to me talking about death and time, um, 
sometimes it happens that the slide and the idea connect in a way which I haven't foreseen. And I think it's that way with understanding that, that um, I don't think I can send something out. I think what I'm hoping is that um, we can collectively be creating this, whatever this new thing is. And so this, I'm going to start playing these slides and, um, and we'll see what happens. Um, before I go any further, one of my ideas was to read a poem of, of Rilke's. About a hundred years ago, Rilke was um, in Paris. He was working for Rodin uh, as his secretary. And he was spending, he was beginning, or he'd already been working on this idea of taking a long, long look at things. Um, and he would go to the Jardin de Plantes and, and, and take a long look at the panther. And then you would see the poem about, some of you, most of you probably do know about the panther. And one of the places he went was to the Louvre where they had this archaic torso of Apollo. Fragment that means you know what they look like when the head's gone, the neck, the arms are off here, the legs are off it there, and you have this torso. And um, uh, I've got to keep things short so I won't go into it too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so Rilke spent a long, long time looking at the archaic torso of Apollo, the god of the sun, and. Um, and he then wrote this poem, which I'll read in the English translation. <clears throat> we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams and in all its power. Otherwise, the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could the smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise, the stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur. Would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star. Here, there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. <clears throat> and it's this question about changing one's life that becomes, seems to me to become more and more urgent with uh, every day that I get older. I don't have any idea how much time I have. But it seems to me that um, something needs to change, and I'll say a little bit more about that now. Um, but that's the meaning, what I mean when I said rather glibly, um, starting over when it's already too late. Um, that has to do with a kind of change where you could say, well, the guy's lived 70 years, he hasn't learned it now. When? When? <laughs> um, and, Yet the proximity of death and the, <laughs> the sense of not having figured it out yet, not having learned to live at this point, um, is a tremendous goad. I think somebody was saying this morning, um, 
my best actions are of the Renaissance painters called pentimenti, um, where you did it wrong and then did it right. And I've never been able to do anything without first really fucking it up and then <laughs> seeing that and then somehow good performance comes out of that. So I'm um, working a bit like that autobiographically. Um, I started as I got involuntarily retired last April to write the book that I've been writing on for years but never had the time to write. Um, and I think I'm going to just read you a little bit about what it's about, which will begin to explain something about what I mean by um, the change that I may not believe in, but I'm hoping to bring about, and bring it about by writing the book. The book is called The Crazy Thing. Um, Stefan Volpe, was a, some of you may have known, was, is an Israeli composer who died 40 years ago. It was really quite astonishing, and he, I knew some of his students, and he would say to them when they brought him some uh, composition that had, um, you know, electricity or something in it, he'd say, that's a crazy thing you got there. <laughs> and so I'm calling this book The Crazy Thing. What I mean by The Crazy Thing is, there's this crazy thing that happens sometimes. When it does, it unseats me. It's a very small kingdom I rule over, but when the crazy thing dethrones me, I wake up and I find myself participating in a wider space than I could ever have imagined. Very little is actually known about this space. Is it one space I participate in, or is it continuously changing, dividing, doubling over on itself, and going into hiding? The crazy thing always comes as an interruption. When it occurs, the moments cease to follow each other predictably. There was even a time once when the crazy thing sucked every last thought out of me, and it felt as if I had been replaced at every point with a substance so fine-grained and sensitive that I could have taken my place in the ranks of a new species. How did this happen? Like any beautiful person or object, the crazy thing provokes desire, a sexy urge to possess and describe it. But it can never be possessed, it possesses me. And as it never happens in the same way twice, it can't be consistently described. How can you picture something that is always changing its shape or category? Each occurrence is singular. It delivers its explosive charge as it withdraws. When I look for it, it's gone. I invite its disruptive action by renouncing it. I seem to have devoted my life to the crazy thing. What can you say about a life devoted to nothing? A nothing that pounces like a tiger or sends, rolls down fireballs through your ears. If I wrote a book about the crazy thing, the pages would be blank. So, and that's the book that I've been trying to write, and when I began, um, the pages weren't so much blank as um, boring, senseless, <laughs> inconsequential. Um, and it was only when I decided to write a book about the trace of the crazy thing leads in its passage as it recedes. So I went for a walk with my dog, 
and I paid the closest possible attention to the way that I walked because I wanted to be able to uh, witness what happens when the crazy thing, well, I can't say, I can't use a verb, but the crazy thing doesn't happen, it doesn't enter, it doesn't, um, so I have to talk about um, how I could follow the trace. Um, and so this gave me an idea for starting over, um, tracking one thing, like walking, and studying it until I could do it in such a way that um, it was completely new. And so I began um, last May or June taking a walk uh, every morning, taking a walk every morning on this stretch of sidewalk on Fifth Avenue near where I live, um, where all the paving stones are a little uneven. There's not one that's absolutely parallel level with the other. The, sidewalk right along Central Park between 97th and 89th where um, the elms have grown the, and the, the roots have heaved it and everything is tipping this way. And so as you're walking, you really, if you're really interested in balance and posture and alignment and feeling your feet on the ground as I am, um, and each step is throwing you a little bit off if you're not walking attentively. Um, so I began to walk there every morning and keep copious notes on my observations when I tried to walk this way. Um, and indeed, I began to penetrate walking. <clears throat> you know, it's something we learned before we, before we could speak. So I don't think I have any, you can't possibly have a verbal memory of learning to walk. But you know it was, you know, you're, you're, you've seen other kids, oh, baby, you made it. You know, all the arms are outstretched, everybody's waiting for you, and you stagger across the room, and every cheer as he took his first step. There must be some residue. But at this point, if you notice the way that you walk, um, I notice, I, I say, okay, I'm headed for the subway. And, you know, up to the corner, and up to 96, down the steps, and it's as though I've said, you know, you've got to be there in that much time. I program in uh, tempo, uh, length of step, and then go off in space, and the feet are going, um, you know, maybe a little hard on the heart, but uh, they're going. That's what I said, and I'm not revisiting walking. In this way of learning, it would be a question of really trying to, to um, to plant each foot on the ground and feel the contact with the ground, the weight of your body on it, the balance as the as the, your weight swings over and the other leg swings. It's like two pendulums that work you know, differently, different direction. And and what would happen was I couldn't attend to it. I couldn't concentrate. But I kept trying. I kept trying to feel this. I would ask questions. Do I think of myself as a puppet that's hung by the top of the head and the feet, the legs just you know, go along like this? Or do I plant the feet like this? And it's a little, each is a little bit true. Um, but it, I began to notice that as I attended inwardly to the sensation, to the impression of my weight and walking and space moving past my eyes because I would try to defocus them as I walked. And it would be like two, being between two radio stations. You know, you'd hear <laughs> your talking voice and then this other intelligence which is mute, um, um, doesn't have much to say, but it's 
incredibly acute. And as these two radio stations, as they begin to um, converge, you know, say you're talking your mind and your the intelligence and the body begin to overlap and touch each other, there would begin to come the most magical and extraordinary impressions of, um, of well, one of the completely contradictory. For instance, normally when you look at a tree, you don't see the individual leaves. You look at the individual leaves, the trees will. And I would see the whole field of vision and the details at the same time. I don't know why <laughs> this is, this is, you know, some of the craziness that goes on um, with your perception when you're um, extremely attentive this way and searching for for something. And it, um, as I did it, and as I continue to do it every day, um, walking um, brought all of these impressions, and I saw that it was like um, it was like the straight gate in the Bible. You, you, you know, you can't, it's a narrow gate. You can't take your bullshit through. You can't take um, thinking about sex or, or um, whatever. You can't Googling, go Googling, whatever the word is. <laughs> Other people. Uh, you can't do it. You have to be on the money. And then you enter um, a kind of field in which um, the, 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 you don't end at your skin anymore. There's, it's as if you're now participating. This is that Lady Brule has described it, that the way so-called primitive thought works. There's this physical and emotional part participation in this larger space I was talking about, um, which doesn't occur when you're representing things to yourself mentally or the way a, the way a scientist does. But when you um, enter into it, there's this sense of not only are you aware of the environment, but you have this odd sense of the environment uh, being aware of you, which is, I, you know, it's an hallucination. I'm not, I'm not saying the trees are acknowledging me, but it's something like where Rilke says, and there is no place that doesn't see me once I was walking. And it was as if my leg were hollow and the space around it were solid. They get these very strange inversions. So um, my idea of starting over, learning to live at the end, had to do with um, with taking something like walking. Um, I, I, finally, because I've got to finish this book before I disappear, I decided to divide it into four things. I would take walking, I would take remembering, I would take a third section on uh, seeing and listening, and another one on the voice. And in the same way that I've been studying walking, study each of those with this sense of trying to um, be extremely attentive to what happens um, as you remember. And it's amazing the things you can remember, that you, uh, even imaginary things, as was said this morning, um, that you, when you're very, very attentive, it can feel like the past is just down there and down the hall in the next room. Um, so that's the idea for why I call it starting over, trying to take these things which are so fundamental, fundamentally ingrained from early childhood that you think you know how to do, and then through an attentive penetration of them to, um, to see where you land. Um, how, where do we go from here? As I was saying, um,
reason this seems urgent to me was I, five years ago I was um, diagnosed with cancer and um, I, they told me I would live. I was, you know, it wasn't that frightening, but it was a brutal uh, treatment with radiation treatment and I won't, I won't go into it except to say that it was brutal and um, you need I tried to, you know, like a philosopher, realize that I was going to die, and you can do it up to a certain point. But when you get sick, really sick or something, then suddenly um, the idea is uh, very present to you, and you begin to believe differently what you couldn't believe. And um, I had a, I had to have a marvelous friend, um, and she, um, about the time I got diagnosed, looked at me, uh, and said in her beautiful voice, if you had to die now, in what ways would it be too soon? <laughs> That's a hard question. It stunned me at the time. Um, you kind of run through you know, the, thing, the, the personal autobiographical things that you, you, know, you, you want to um, finally settle a score or get forgiveness from somebody or talk, start talking to somebody that you didn't talk to for six years or uh, whatever. There, there are all kinds of things that you know when you're faced with it that you've been putting off that you now better deal with. Everybody has what's called the list or quickly discovers it. Um, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there's another aspect to it, which is, has nothing to do with your personal autobiography. And it's, it's, it's this sense of, um, of that's, that's inherent in the literature, starting with you know the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus has to come home. He's going to go through all of these uh, obstacles and stages before he can get home. Dante has to go through um, hell and up through purgatory before he can. This, this sense that there is some ongoing process of maturation or ripening, um, and that there could be, although we don't acknowledge it much anymore, there could be something like a foreordained um, end for, of human development. Um, is that funny? worries <laughs> me. Um, it's, it, it's a concern, and so what is, what is oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it concerns me because, um, you know, I, when I was 19, I got all involved with the Gurdjieff work and I gave my life to it. And, and there was this promise that you would become this realized man. And I look at myself and I, you know, I, there's certain real accomplishments, but I don't feel like the fully realized man. So there's this question is, what is um, this process of individuation, um, and I don't mean that the way Jung does, I mean the, the way uh, any organism, even I think even a crystal is said to have this, this, this kind of a pre-individual condition in which there are these latent forces, some of them wildly opposing and, and vastly different scales, and that something happens um, psyche, the organism, the crystal, whatever it is, goes out of phase with itself, whatever the precondition is, and there's a kind of doubling, and then um, something is accomplished, 
and you become, or the psyche becomes, the organism becomes a more complex, evolved condition. When I say evolved, I mean something that is uh, qualitatively different than what was there before, something that is more responsive, more intelligent, more, uh, you know, I don't know what all it is. And um, that brings me to uh, somebody I want to talk about, and that's Kierkegaard, who also had this idea of, of um, what he called stages on life's way, which were uh, elective. You, you, know, you, you could spend the whole of your life in what he calls the, the immediate or uh, aesthetic stage where you simply live in the senses and, um, and then there is an ethical stage and then there are two stages of uh, religiousness and um, I'm not so much interested and I don't really understand what his stages are but there is a, um, a, a way in which one passes from one say from the uh, immediate stage into the ethical stage the way that occurs is very surprising in Kierkegaard's way of dealing with things, because he says, he doesn't say you enter the ethical stage by adopting a moral code or uh, uh, being a good person. And he says you, you achieve this by uh, choosing yourself. No, you would, everybody, I don't, he doesn't mean egotism by that. Let's just eliminate that idea that um, the way, of course, um, when we're sitting at table and I see the bigger piece of bread and reach for, for myself, I've chosen it for myself. That's not what he means. Nor does he mean um, the kind of decisions um, whereby I select the tie that I'm going to wear in the morning or the, uh, or the movie I'm going to see or the profession. It's not a question of, of selection. The choice is absolute and total of I choose myself, meaning I become related to myself. go into what I mean by relation first, but Kierkegaard <coughs> describes this, um, this doubling over of, of the self related to itself as becoming what you are, Nietzsche also used that phrase, um, you become a self, um, and he said that in a wonderful description of it, um, what is the self? The self is not um, Substantial. It's just, it isn't your profession or your name or your gender or your um, accumulation of experiences. It isn't any substantial thing. It's this a relation that relates itself to itself. Is how he defines the the, the self. And um, it's obscure what that means, um, or was to me until until I began to relate it to this. Um, this idea, this, it, there's a word for it in philosophy that I can't remember. When, you know, we are sensitive, sen, you know, sensitive beings. We feel pain and, and um, it, I feel cold tonight. It's pretty chilly in here. Um, but there's, you know, they talk about a second layer where I know that I feel cold. Um, usually when Searle or somebody like that describes it, it sounds relatively trivial as if the knowledge that I'm cold is the same thing as the knowledge that this is crystal geyser water. Whereas um, in Kierkegaard's meaning, the, the, um, this doubling over of consciousness when I um, go out of step with myself, out of phase with myself, as one person puts it, and there's this um, 
consciousness of consciousness, this squared consciousness, this consciousness to the, to the second power, you might say, is of such a completely different order um, that um, unless it occurs, um, you can't even imagine it. People who practice meditation um, know something about it. This is what was happening as I was practicing this walk. That, that um, I would, I think, describe it as entering, passing from this idea of the hexagonal version of time into a, a kind of time in which what happens next is completely unpredictable. And so, in this, the, one of the, what I mean by starting over is this sense of being ready. Um, because I'm not assuming that tonight I will live as I did last night, or. Um, Tomorrow will be the same day, or the next second will be the same. Um, and you know, I've been practicing Tai Chi, and one of the one of the meditative techniques they give in, in Qigong is he would say, "You just stand." And I say, "Well, don't you you know, don't you follow your breathing or, or sense your body or any of those techniques for meditating?" And he'd say, "No, because if you if you give any direction to the mind whatsoever, then you're not ready." And it, uh, Tai Chi is a martial art. You have to be in it. The idea is to train to be ready for whatever happens. Now, this idea of being ready for whatever happens is how Kierkegaard also describes the passage into these other further stages. He says that just as our vision selects and then occludes and selects something else, he says you choose yourself in the sense of choosing the whole of your experience, anything that happens. Now, if you were able to follow your mind, if I were able, or anyone were, to follow one's mind, you see it works pretty much the way the eyes work. I select what I want to pay attention to, and if there's threat of death or, or you know, I may defend myself, but basically I occlude unpleasant thoughts. I look, sit on the bus, bored, and I'm not attending to anything because I'm looking forward to the person, seeing the person I'm going to have dinner with. There is this continual figure ground um, play that takes place in the ordinary, everyday consciousness. And when Kierkegaard says, I choose the whole of my life, it means I choose everything. I choose to attend to everything. I choose, as he puts it, to receive it as a gift from above. Every good gift is from above. And I read that, I, you know, that's part of the stoic uh, position that you, that whatever happens to you is, I accept. And, you know, I think that go, goes certain ways, but, to, you know, as someone who's being raped, supposed to, to take, um, you know, this is a good gift from above, um, as someone who's being led into the gas chamber or, or lynched or something, supposed to think that, um, it seems that that's an, a nice sentiment. Um, so why would we say, I would absolutely choose all my experience? And then, 
Um, I don't know if you all saw it, but in the New Yorker last August, there was this marvelous article about deep sea diving. Deep sea, I don't mean in a bathosphere, I mean uh, people, it's free diving, I think that's the word for it, where people go down 100 meters um, on, by holding their breath and dropping down. And in the, when you go down that far, your lung compresses to the size of a lemon. Um, and it's really, and if you have one panic thought, you yank the chain that, you know, they'll pull you up as fast as they can. And so um, the interviewer was, descri was, was asking her, what is the, the mental discipline for being able to dive 100 or more meters? And I'm just going to read you the, um, the, the exchange is very short. Deep divers use a technique known as attention deconcentration. The way one diver describes this is as a distribution to the whole field of attention. You try to feel everything simultaneously. This condition creates an empty consciousness so the bad thoughts don't exist. Is it difficult to learn? Yes, it's difficult. I teach it at my university. It's a technique from ancient warriors. It was used by the samurai, but it was developed by a Russian scientist as a psychological state management technique for people who do very monotonous jobs. I asked if it was like meditation. To some degree, except meditation means you're completely free. But if you're in the sea, you have to be focused or it will get bad. What what you do to start learning is to focus at the edges, not the center of things, as if you were looking at a screen. Basically, all the thing, all the time I am doing, all the time I'm diving, I have an empty consciousness. I have a kind of melody going through my mind that keeps me going, but otherwise, I'm completely not in my mind. And um, so it occurs to me that Just say, deep sea diving is the second most dangerous extreme sport, the most dangerous being diving off uh, skyscrapers in a parachute. <laughs> Sometimes you die when you do the deep sea diving or dive off there. In life, you always die, and you have no idea how it's coming. Um, and um, the question about being ready for anything that happens, not just for um, disaster, but being ready for anything, like the Tai Chi uh, practice of emptiness, uh, uh, to be prepared and ready for anything, including dying, seems to me what is the, the, the accomplishment, the learning that stands, uh, which I'm searching for, I don't claim to have found it, but it's that sense that life is the most extreme of all extreme sports. So why would you say meditation is, I reserve my meditation for sitting with my eyes closed in a room um, apart or with on a retreat or something like that when, um, when you're, you're, you're doing something much more dangerous than uh, diving off a skyscraper. So that's my presentation. I don't know, do I have any more time? If you're clapping, that means I don't. <laughs> More time. Well, I, I could read. Sue, you tell me what to do. I have a short 10 minute reading from another chapter. Read. I, read. 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 Oh, I 
do have time because the slideshow is still going. <laughs> okay. Um, the way I discovered this way of, of uh, approaching the, the, the uh, writing about the crazy thing was when I took my dog for a walk. And here's a, something I wrote some time ago about um, that walk. And by the way, I've I'm writing this book in the second person, so I am you. I say you, um, because just because the spirit in which the book is written is in this idea of relating the self to the self. So uh, I can't say certain things, and I can't say certain things about unexpected developments coming to consciousness in the first person. I think I can only say them in the second, so that's why this is written in the second person. Once you left the house and went for a walk, you went looking for eternity. Roscoe the dog went with you because he had seen you slip a green tennis ball into your pocket. <clears throat> you were living on an island then, and rumors of the sea were never far off. Sitting on the wide piazza in the dark, you could watch the lightning dance all night on the horizon. And when the tide was low, you could hear the oysters breathe. By day, long V's of pelicans patrolled the sound. The air was salty, and the weather unpredictable. <clears throat> Sudden squalls and tempests, the wind tearing through the leaves of the huge live oak, the rain beating insanely on the tin roof, then sudden sunlight, drops of water dripping from the eaves, the hummingbird comes back to the feeder, the lizards come out from under the sofa, Roscoe the dog comes out from under the house, once lightning struck out of a clear June sky, not 20 feet from where you were sitting in the boathouse, so loud it turned you inside out. Eternity can't be far off, you thought. Eternity, so fine-grained and volatile that it penetrates everywhere. That was a speculative thought, and this time you meant to catch eternity by the tail. You held the screen door open as Roscoe picked his way down the stairs. He loved to chase bulls, and he did it with immaculate concentration. There was nothing he loved better. A few steps from the house, you threw the ball as high and as hard as you could. It bounced once. With flawless timing, the dog left the ground, and twisting as he leaped, he snapped it out of the air, then trotting into the surf where he flopped, cooling his long underbelly in the waves, waiting for you to catch up. He wasn't looking for eternity, probably because he was already living in some kind of timeless immediacy. It is only humans who insanely refuse to acknowledge our involvement in it. When I think of Roscoe lying now in the cool earth under the oak behind the house, I think of the sunny morning in June when we went out in search of eternity together. <clears throat> we headed for the back field. I was walking deliberately, planting my feet on the ground with earnest concentration. The sun was warm and it dappled the grass under the trees. When we walked out past the duck pond, our passage startled a clack of wood ibis nesting in the tall pines under the brackish water, and they flew off with their wings drumming. Across the wide sound, I could see in the distance the outline of the crumbling lighthouse a hundred feet or so from the eastern end of the island. I turned my attention inward then so as to be ready. I wanted to set up a sentinel there, a high place in the mind, just beyond where the thoughts form. 
From there, I could listen and not lose myself in the drone of the insects and the punctuation of occasional bird song. From there, I could watch myself, watch the landscape as it dissolves and reforms itself around me with each step. Round the pond we went, and out into the pecan orchard where the earth is soft underfoot and colonies of fire ants dot the field. <clears throat> The inward turn is always more difficult than you imagine. There's backsliding, distraction, and worries enough to tempt you from the path. You stop, but then you stop again, and again. Each time, it's as though the weather changed and the birds flew away. Silence. Then it all starts off again with a clatter, and you have to unravel your thoughts a fourth, a fifth, a sixth time. Build it up, erect the lonely tower in the mind, hollow out a place to receive quickened vision. As you came around a bend by the barn, you saw a cardinal in the underbrush. It was watching you out of its extreme redness. Though eternity's essence may be stillness itself, it only occurs to humans in flashes, as if eternity were explosive, a tinderbox of boiling gas. <clears throat> Remember, you said to yourself, eternity is too huge to hide. It is your small thoughts that conceal it, though only from yourself. Do the fish see the water or the birds the air? To see eternity, you will have to look out from behind your obstructed gaze, look past the preoccupations of your mind. You could feel the shock and shudder of your steps, the air sweet in your nostrils as you pass the tennis court. <clears throat> There's an exercise for freeing oneself from one's thoughts that consists in regarding every image that appears in the mind as a reflex. The way an image will always appear on the ground glass of a camera when you point it towards this or that. Relinquish responsibility for every thought or image and your body will tingle with the sensation of itself and your hearing can encompass the whole field of sound. You found a point over your head from which your gaze could be stable, the point where a flame would be if you were a candle. Then the fire died out, and it flared up. For a moment you were in two places at once, both above and below, both inside and out, and then the hot presence burned itself into your mind. You knew your mind was too small for this passage, but the present came on anyway like a birth, tearing your mind to bits. The idea of eternity entered like a burning coal that withered and fried everything around it. You felt an absolute leap in the heart, delight, and simultaneously an immense and unfathomable, unfathomable sorrow. You were still walking. You reached back into your pocket and took out the tennis ball, bounced it once to get the dog's attention, and then threw it hard. The ball arced into the air, and time stopped. From this point on, events no longer succeeded one another, but appeared as sculptures in a frieze. You saw all this in a vision. You saw your attention travel out along the length of your arm and follow the ball. You saw Roscoe racing toward the point he had calculated the ball would bounce. The dog is leaping to catch the ball. The sky is darkening. The branches of the cedar tree are bobbing up and down on the rising wind. 
A line is drawn from the soles of your feet into the upper air. The dog snatches the ball and comes down on all fours. He is turning towards you. He is coming to you or towards you at a trot. An immensely tall thought has split the air, a scribble of lightning, and now you are waiting, waiting through all eternity for the muffled boom of the answering thunder that is still to come. In this way, you met eternity on a June day and were left hanging. The idea of eternity has scooped you out and left a little hollow, a hankering, a hunger knot that will not go away and only grows and grows with the passing of time. Maybe we should turn the house lights on now. sense of disgust and, and you know if you go out on 
a repetition which seems ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why that's why I drove up here from, from California yesterday. Because I knew that if I didn't, I would be done. Right. It's simply that. Yes. Sorry to keep picking up my question. Did I read that same New York article? And I have to go and to read the New York Post, but I have to figure out why that remains me to experience that kind of focus. What do you think it means? Why do they do it? Why do we want Well, um, and like many people, it's almost a cliche to say when you get <clears throat> when you get hit with something really bad, it wakes you up. I mean, but I the, the, the experience of having cancer and feeling like shit um, all day long and everything else was at the same time the most <clears throat> spectacular period to go through, to think through, to think how I wanted to live, what I wanted to do, what it meant. Um, it, it was, it, and <clears throat> it happens now. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat's going. Um, we think of death as, you know, the implacable enemy, but uh, when you learn even a little bit to, to focus on it, it turns out to be your implacable friend. It's, uh, it, it's you know, if I'm, Depressed or disoriented, that I spend you know enough time on the thought of you, you know you don't have really have time for this. What is essential? What is most important? And it has a sense of of, um, of producing a condition of. I remember I, long before I got cancer, I kept I, I tried to you know, I read Kierkegaard's idea that uh, there is a, a mode of consciousness which is. Um, impossible as long as you're including the idea of your finitude, your fragility, and everything else. And um, so I tried it, and I kept a journal of that, too. And I remember one of the journal entries said something like, um, try to think the thought of dying, and you open the book of lies. But, but if you, there's any, no thought is more unpleasant than that one. I don't want to think it. And yet, if you stick with it, you stay with it, it's as though some kind of, you, you feel that your thoughts are just like buzzing flies and something like courage leaks in and suddenly you feel yourself like a master swordsman balanced on the balls of your feet and so ready that you could parry any distracting thought, any distracting, anything that uh, takes you off your, whatever your purpose or sense of, um, you know, we live like this on the surface of life and any one of these experiences reveals you know, 70,000 fathoms underneath that and, um, it becomes more and more uh, intolerable to, to, to live without um, that demand for, for a, uh, a core experience of, of feeling your relationship to the other, feeling your relationship to the, to the creation, if you can call it that. Um, and it, so then, I think that's why people put, you know, there were people in the concentration camps who had experiences that nothing ever, like, I mean, transcendent experiences that uh, 
never happened under any other conditions. So I think something like that is what is behind that playing Russian roulette. <clears throat> Hi, yes? Mm -hmm. uh, the nearest I can express to your relation to what you're saying is um, my mother had breast cancer, and uh, I assisted in, it's an outpatient surgery to have to double mastectomy. Um, but it is one of those things where, you know, when you're, you're sniff sniffing your mother's blood for yeah. infection, that it becomes a, a harrowing experience. And, um, and also, those months where I'm looking at my mother's face, who always wears makeup, and I'm looking at her face without makeup, thinking, why does she wear makeup? You know, 50-something years into her life. And it is, it's this acute awareness that happens when you're on the point of something. And um, so thank you for sharing. Thank you. <laughs> I think we should stop now because I'm absolutely freezing. <laughs> <laughs>